Hey, welcome back, everybody. Today, we're going to be talking to Dr. Peter Ferguson, who's an orthopedic oncologist in Toronto, and he's also the chief of orthopedics at the University of Toronto. So the first question is, if you can tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and how you got to where you are. Sure. My name is Peter Ferguson. I'm the, the chair of orthopedics at uh, University of Toronto. Uh, I'm um, actually a, a sarcoma surgeon, so an orthopedic oncologist at at Mount Sinai Hospital and Princess Margaret Hospitals, which are two of the teaching hospitals. You know, in terms of my background, I was born and raised in uh, in the GTA. Grew up just north of the city uh, in in Markham. Did my undergraduate at Western actually, and then went to Toronto for my medical school and residency. Uh, did fellowship in Birmingham in the United Kingdom in orthopedic oncology, and I've been at uh, Mount Sinai and University of Toronto since 2002. Right on. And now the next question is, why did you choose to do orthopedics, and did you consider anything else as a medical student? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I, I must say, uh, when I when I entered medical school, I, I was pretty convinced that I was going to do orthopedics, which uh, I think is a, it's a little bit unusual. I think people certainly tend to be less well differentiated and, uh, and tend to, you know, sort of explore things a little bit. I was really, really committed. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons. So, uh, I had an injury myself when I was, when I was 13. Uh, and it's amazing how common that is for people who, uh, ultimately end up getting interested in orthopedics they have personal experience when they're younger. So I had a, a fractured elbow playing hockey when I was 13 and I was operated on by, by, Robert Salter, who, uh, you know, just starting out exploring orthopedics, you'll hear about what's called the Salter-Harris classification of, of uh, growth plate injuries in kids. So he was a surgeon at Hospital for Sick Children. And um, as it turns out, really was, you know, arguably the most famous orthopedic surgeon in the world, uh, you know, in his time. And so he operated on me and, and uh, I was actually one of the first patients to ever utilize what's called a continuous passive motion machine on my elbow. It was this machine that kept my elbow moving like this 24 hours a day in order to maintain joint range of motion. So I was introduced a little bit to the academic side of orthopedics uh, at that time. In terms of why I chose ultimately to go into oncology, uh, there are several reasons as, as well. You know, I got exposure as a medical student doing a summer research project with Bob Bell, who ultimately went on to become Deputy Minister of Health, he was a he was a sarcoma surgeon as well. Um, and you know, I got exposed during residency to the rotation. But probably the most biggest and most significant influence was when I was 17. My best friend contracted bone cancer, uh, Ewing sarcoma, and ended up passing away. And so I was with him through that journey and through that battle. And and so at that point, I, I decided that I was going to. Uh, commit my life to trying to help patients fight this disease. Well said. Now, speaking of choosing orthopedics, one of the things that often hinders people is the job market and concerns of being able to find a job, especially in Canada after you're done your training. As somebody on the inside, what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, that that, that always comes up as an issue. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it is a bit of a concern. And, and the reason for that is really our healthcare system does not lend itself very well, unfortunately, to supporting individuals who want to pursue a practice that's expensive, right? So orthopedic surgeons are expensive to hospitals. The implants we put in people are expensive. 
you know, the, the time it takes and the effort for hospitals to look after patients is, is pretty expensive. So um, now, having said that, the demand for orthopedic surgeons in Ontario is enormous, right? There's so many people that need hip and knee replacements and uh, are on long waiting lists that, um, that I think that, you know, the, the governments have to realize that in order to improve the quality of life of Ontarians, they do have to support and, and fund orthopedic surgery in, in various hospitals. So I don't think there's any choice. In terms of how bad or not so bad the situation is, it is not nearly as bad as it was, you know, sort of eight to 10 years ago. And I can give you just personal anecdotes from, from uh, University of Toronto. You know, since I've been chair, so it's been about seven years, almost seven years, probably about 90% of our graduates have permanent jobs. Few that don't are still in fellowships. There's a few that, um, you know, they've chosen not to seek permanent hospital jobs and their, their career is surgical assists. And, and that's fine. That's what they want to do for lifestyle reasons. Um, but, but the vast majority of our, of our graduates have jobs and the significant number of those in Southern Ontario. Uh, the other thing is that at, at University of Toronto, we've recruited 25 new surgeons to our core teaching hospitals in the last seven years. So uh, that, that's a lot. Uh, so it, it, it is uh, a concern. I would love to sort of say, yes, anybody who wants to enter orthopedics, it's guaranteed that you're going to have a job. Uh, but, uh, you know, the situation now is not nearly as dire as it, it probably is painted and uh, certainly not as bad as it was eight to 10 years ago. And my message to anybody who's interested in it is that it's so hard to predict what the job market is going to look like, you know, five, six, seven, or 10 years down the road. And, and the best advice is just do what, you know, you enjoy doing and what, uh, what makes you excited. All right. And then the second factor that kind of can scare people away from not only ortho, but the reputation of surgical residencies is the tough lifestyle, both as a resident and as an attending. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I, I mean, uh, there's, there's no getting around that, right? It is, um, it, it is a busy lifestyle. All right. What I can tell you, however, is that um, I, I think things have changed a lot, you know, certainly since I've been a surgeon, I go back to when I started training over 25 years ago, um, things, things are a lot better now. And it's because I think people who are, uh, you know, who are in positions of, of authority and leadership are now better able to model, uh, you know, sort of good practices when it comes to, to lifestyle. For example, uh, you know, in, in the midst of my sort of, sort of younger days in my career, my son, you know, he, he was a hockey player and, uh, you know, wasn't a great hockey player. He, was a hockey player. he wanted to quit hockey uh, when he was about seven years old. And I said, well, I, I don't want that. Uh, what if I coach you? And he said, okay, I'll keep playing then. And so for the next 10 years, I coached, I coached two hockey teams. And I made it a conscious effort to sort of say, you know, with the exception of if I was on call, uh, no matter what I had going on, it's got to, I've got to leave. I've got to go coach my son's hockey game. So I chose that as a priority. And I would say a lot of the, you know, the new recruits in, uh, you know, certainly in our university these days, um, you know, they want to be able to have time with their families and they are really mirroring that, you know, sort of same sort of practice and that they're making that conscious decision and effort to, uh, to prioritize lifestyle and, and family time. So, that wasn't the case. Uh, I can tell you that 25, 30 years ago. So 
Um, there's no getting around it. It is, it is busy. Uh, you know, if you're on call, um, you know, quite often you will be working, you know, in, in the evening, sometimes overnight, um, that sort of thing. So there are sacrifices to make, but I like to think that, that, you know, we encourage people to really prioritize lifestyle. I, I love it when people say, I've got this, this lifestyle outside of work, outside of orthopedics. I do that. I do this. I, I love to travel. I love to play this sport and whatnot. I, I love to play music. I think that's fantastic that people have a life outside hospital. Now, specifically your practice and doing orthopedics in Toronto, what's your favorite part about it? So I guess a couple of things. My practice, um, a couple of things about my practice in oncology. The first thing is that uh, I'm not constrained to any one part of the body, right? You see a lot of orthopedics, as you're probably aware, is sort of anatomically compartmentalized. You have foot and ankle surgeons, you've got hand surgeons, you've got shoulder and elbow surgeons. General orthopedic surgeons, you know, without a doubt, they do, you know, sort of into these different areas. But um, in oncology, we have to be knowledgeable about all anatomic areas in the body. And, and I might have one week where I'm operating on a, on, a, on a thigh, the next week a complex hand tumor, the next week, that sort of thing. I love that about it. Um, I love the fact that I have this sort of long-term relationship with my patients. Um, you know, I have patients who I, I started treating 18, 19 years ago and they were teenagers and now they're grown up and they have kids. And, and, uh, I, I love that idea that I can, you know, sort of have this long lasting relationship. And then the third thing is that I, I really enjoy the challenge. I like it when people from other hospitals contact me and say, Hey, I've got this really difficult problem. Can you help out? And, um, I like sort of being that, that go-to person for the challenging problems. In terms of the, the Toronto, the, you know, the city and the training program, um, I think, you know, really what, what we offer in Toronto is, you know, sort of a, I, I would say an unrivaled exposure to, you know, not only straightforward, but, you know, complex uh, scenarios across the spectrum of orthopedics, right? You get the most challenging, you know, pediatric cases, ecology cases, spine, trauma, that sort of thing. And plus we have world leaders, and world authorities in every single subspecialty, right? We've had people who are presidents of all kinds of subspecialty societies. And, you know, so, you know, if you come to Toronto as a resident, you're learning from a world authority, right? There's multiple teaching hospitals. That appeals to some people, maybe not to others. There's some people who say, look, they like the feel of a small program where, you know, they get to know everybody and they work with the same people every day for five years. That's something that, you know, would not be the case because we've got uh, sort of seven core teaching hospitals that people move all around to throughout training. All right. But I, I think that's a plus, the fact that you can get to know a broad, broad range of people, uh, you know, across the city. Yeah. The other thing that, that we offer uh, is, um, you know, sort of research experience and, and sort of research exposure, our surgical skill, our, our um, uh, surgeon scientist training program where uh, you know, a resident can take time out of training to get a master's or a PhD or an MBA or a master's in engineering. I mean, you know, you've got your choice in terms of what you want to do. And it, it really allows us to train the um, academic orthopedic leaders of the future. Now, from a student perspective, what does Toronto Ortho look for in an applicant? Yeah. This is, this is always a great question, and I think people are, uh, you know, usually are a little bit surprised to hear, you know, some of my thoughts on this. You know, we can, we can train people to be really good technical surgeons. Um, we can 
give people the knowledge that they need to have. What's really difficult is to train somebody to be a really good person and a hardworking person, right? So, you know, I can tell you from, from my perspective, uh, the things that we like to see are really those uh, sort of less tangible sort of personality traits, right? So we want to see people that work really well with their, with their team members. They're not afraid to take on a, you know, a share of the work. They're really hardworking people, um, uh, very professional, polite, respectful uh, like to have a life outside of orthopedics as well, right? So, and these are things that it, it, you know, it's really hard, I must say, to, you know, sort of get a, get a feel for that and, um, you know, sort of have a solid evaluation of people, how good a person somebody is. It's just the sort of thing that you, you, you get, a, you know, you get a little bit of an exposure and, and um, you get a gut feeling. That's, you know, I must say that that's the case, Okay. All the other things are important, right? We like to see, you know, we like to see some research experience. It doesn't have to be in orthopedics, but uh, you know, some uh, evidence of research experience. Um, you know, we like to see that uh, you've got convincing interest in orthopedics. If you've done 15 electives and 15 different things, it may be a bit of a challenge to come across as convincing that that orthopedics is what you want to do. But we also want people who've had a bit of a broad exposure, right? I, I my eyebrow goes up a little bit to somebody who's done 15 orthopedic electives and nothing else, right? Because I I don't want somebody coming into our program and you know trying something for the first time in some other off-service specialty and say, oh wow, I missed the boat. I should be an anesthetist or I should be uh, an intensivist. So I think it's a fine line of making sure you get a broad enough exposure, but you also want to show evidence that you're you know you're committed to a to a career in orthopedics. So, you know, really it comes down to us deciding that, yeah, the person that, uh, that we're exposed to, um, we think is going to fit really well with our team here in Toronto. And, and what I can tell you is that a lot of that input comes from residents. Um, you know, we know that students are, are going to work hard uh, when, when we're around. It's when we're not around and they work equally hard or harder and they impress the residents. That's what I find is really valuable. So if I get a resident giving me unsolicited feedback on a student to say, hey, I work with this student. They were phenomenal. Uh, this is what they did. And, you know, they came in, they rounded on, you know, pre-rounded on patients. And, and um, you know, they always knew all the, you know, the sort of the blood results and, 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 you know, followed up on every test result, that sort of thing. If I hear a resident writes me some unsolicited email providing praise for that student, that, that is the best possible recommendation that I could possibly see. Mm -hmm. All right. Now for, let's say, somebody who didn't go to Toronto as a medical student, what can they do to really set themselves apart and be competitive for a residency spot there? Sure. So, I mean, we've had lots of residents um, that, have, uh, that have matched to our training program uh, without even having set foot in the city, um, uh, done elective here at all. So, uh, I mean, you know, it, 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 it can be helpful. There's no doubt if we have some firsthand contact, but you know, I think, uh, if it comes across very clearly in reference letters that, you know, the individual in question is, is, you know, really high quality, hardworking individual, a good person, a good teammate, and, you know, their CV reflects an, an element of, uh, you know, obviously, you know, high performance in, you know, in medical school and, and undergraduate and, you know, again, the things I've said, some evidence of research and, and extracurricular activities, then uh, absolutely. And, and the interview, as long as they come across as, you know, being an individual that um, the people on the interview panel think that, oh, yeah, we think they would fit in well with our team, then they've got as good a chance as anybody. 
Okay. So we don't have any requirement. Like you have to have done elective here. We're not going to interview you or anything like that. We take the best, the best possible people based on their packages. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll often have people who've done electives and they don't get interview, and people who've never set foot in the city and they get an interview. All right. Now the next thing, are surgeons born or made in your opinion? So I think there's some elements of surgery that are, are inherent in individuals. So, you know, I, I think visual spatial skill, um, depth perception, things like that. Um, I think that some of those skills are, are inherent to individuals. There probably is some genetic basis for those. And, you know, I think those people can become very good technical surgeons, but that's only one component of it, right? I think uh, the vast majority of of skills for a surgeon um, are are developed. Um, so, you know, a lot of surgery is decision making, right? Being able to make the correct decision when to operate, when not to operate, what sort of operation to offer, how to deal with complications. Those are all the difficult parts of surgery. And you don't need to be a technical genius in order to, you know, to figure out those aspects of things, right? So I think that if, you know, We've had individuals who've gone through our program that, for whatever reason, have, have just never developed technically, and, and those people probably um, didn't have, you know, that key component because obviously the technical skill is important, but it's far uh, from the only thing. So there's many, many things that I think are, are learned behavior. So I would think, by and large, surgeons are probably made rather than born. Now, if you had to sell students on the Toronto program, what do you think separates it from everything else and makes it what it is? I think the one other thing that I haven't sort of elaborated on a lot is our experience with with competency-based education, right? So, you know, the Royal College has um, uh, introduced competence by design in orthopedics this past year. So uh, in 2009, we started a pilot project uh, introducing competency-based medical education in, in surgical training. Uh, we started with three residents, and that was the first uh, surgical training program in the world, as far as we're aware, to introduce a completely competency-based residency curriculum. So we had that for um, for four years. Our pilot, our pilot stream, we recruited residents. We ended up having 14 residents as part of the pilot. They went through. They all ended up you know, graduating from our training program. A number of them are on our faculty now. So... Um, the challenge now is that there's a lot of programs across the country that are, are uh, facing this, um, this new concept of competency-based education, and there's growing pains. Um, but we don't have really growing pains because we went through growing pains 12 ago. So, so we've been able to adapt to that very, very quickly. There's some other new innovations that we're, that we're bringing in, and, and you know, I'll show you one, for example. So we're introducing virtual reality curriculum into our training program. So, uh, you know, any of the new residents in our program this year, they're going to get an Oculus headset. And we've got an entire uh, curriculum um, that has set, we got set out so far um, and that we're going to further develop. And so the expectation is that our residents, for example, are going to be able to practice their technical skills on this virtual reality platform um, in their own time. It's got multiplayer capacity, so uh, the faculty member could be in their living room. The resident can be in their living room. They can meet in a virtual operating room, and they can do this case together. Pass instruments back and forth. The faculty member can give direct supervision and guidance. And so what it allows is the trainee to practice 
you know, sort of the steps of an operation in a, in a very low stakes environment, right? They're not going to, they're not going to hurt anybody. They can take as much time as they want. Right. So that's something that's really exciting that, uh, that we're introducing this year. I think a lot of the other things that are unique about our program, we've already talked about, you know, our surgeon scientist training program, um, you know, our, our expectation that our trainees are going to be able to undertake sort of technical skills at a very early stage. Um, so you hear a lot about junior residents going into a training program and, and you know, they're on the ward while the senior residents are in the OR. That doesn't happen in our training program. Our junior residents, they're operating like day one of their training program, okay? Uh, and they have to be because they have to be able to demonstrate technical proficiency to move along in our competency-based uh, platform. So I think there's a lot of things that are, uh, that are really, really positive about our training program. Um, and, you know, we, we certainly uh, love to be able to train the best and the brightest from across the country. Now, the last question we had for you was looking back at your medical journey in life. Is there any advice or regrets that you have for us? medicine or otherwise? Yeah, I was, uh, I was thinking about that question um, probably the most out of all of this. And, you know, the one thing I, I probably would have done differently going through my training um, through residency and, and, um, and, you know, even undergraduate is that I, I, I had a pretty much a singular focus on what I was going to do with my life. And it probably in that time didn't give me um, enough of an opportunity to get some greater life experiences in terms of, you know, global health, for example, or rural medicine, going to someplace in, you know, rural Ontario, Northern Ontario, doing some primary care. You know, I mentioned global health, third world health, that sort of thing. Uh, I think there's a lot of things that, that, you know, I didn't experience that would, you know, probably allow me to appreciate a little bit more the entire spectrum of, of medicine, right? Um, you know, my, my area that I practice is very niche, right? It's very focused. You know, there's only about 17 or 18 sarcoma surgeons in the entire country. So that's probably one thing that I would have done different. And if, if people say, you know, what would I, what would I recommend? I, I would suggest you should try to get a broad exposure as possible to, you know, sort of really understand and come to grips with, you know, sort of the role of medicine in society. Um, because it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's a huge, huge mantle that, you are all taking on, right? And there's lots of things that go on out there that if you you know proceed in a in a bit of a niche area, you maybe don't grow to appreciate. So so that's probably the one bit of advice that I would give is try to get a really really broad exposure to things.